welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building, and we are going to dive deep into some NBA draft philosophy, some young player philosophy league-wide, and just generally, I'm letting Adam take over the show. That's the whole thing here. The conceit of the whole episode, other than these first 10 minutes where we're going to talk about an update in the Damian Lillard saga, is... After we go to commercial break, Adam is taking over the show and he is going to break down what we're going to talk about. He has a list of, I think, 10 questions for me, right? 13 questions. 13 questions that I have not seen. I have no idea what they are. I I genuinely like the only hints I have are what he told me to put in the thumbnail. There's something on Scoot Henderson. There's something on Alper and Shangun. And there's something on Evan Mobley. That's literally all I know at this point. And he's going to ask questions, and I'm going to have to answer them on the fly and figure it out. So it's going to be really fun. It's literally going to be a free-flowing, no-research-beforehand conversation. So we'll see how stupid I look at the end of this. Adam, how's it going, man? Sam, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for indulging me and having me on here uh, to to ask you a bunch of these questions. I I know uh, I get to pay you back for all the times we take questions from the comments and you just say, Spins, what do you think? So we get to hear from Sam first tonight, which is going to be great for a change. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one. It's the best. I feel like I often just put you on the spot when I don't know what to say. And so now you get to do the same to me. It's payback right. time for Spins. But it's also payback time for the NBA and the Damian Lillard saga. So let's take a quick peek at what happened there. The NBA sent a memo to all 30 teams on Damian Lillard's trade request. Essentially, throughout this process, Aaron Goodwin, Damian Lillard's agent, has been kind of showcasing to teams that he will only play for Miami. There's a chance that he will sit out if another team trades for him. Everything like that. What happened here is that the NBA is going to try and take some of that power back right now. They're going to try and say, no, we're not going for this. We're not doing this. We're not going down this road. According to Sean Sharania, who reported uh, about this memo and who got the full memo, this is what it states. Recent media reports stated that Damian Lillard's agent, Aaron Goodwin, called multiple NBA teams to warn them against trading for Lillard because Lillard's only desired trade destination is Miami. Goodwin also made public comments indicating that Lillard would not fully perform the services called for under his player contract if traded to another team. We interviewed Goodwin and Lillard and also spoke with several NBA teams to whom Goodwin spoke. Goodwin denied stating or indicating to any team that Lillard would refuse to play for them. Goodwin and Lillard affirmed to us that Lillard would fully perform the services called for under his player contract in any trade scenario. The relevant teams provided descriptions of their communications with Goodwin that were mostly, though not entirely, consistent with Goodwin's statements to us. We have advised Goodwin and Lillard that any future comments made privately to teams or publicly suggesting Lillard will not fully perform the services called for under his player contract in the event of a trade will subject Lillard to discipline by the NBA. We have also advised the Players Association that any similar comments by players or their agents will be subject to discipline going forward. Honestly, I think the last part of that statement is probably the most important. 
This is the NBA trying to get a handle on what is very clearly stars signing extensions and then trying to get elsewhere throughout this entire thing. I think that last statement is critical. This is the NBA sending, you know, a, a warning shot across the bow of all agencies, all star players saying, if you sign this extension, you are subject to what a team decides to do with you, be it keep you or trade you anywhere in the league. This is the reality of the situation. And consider this before you sign an extension. And it it seems like that's the NBA standing up for a lot of owners who are, are sick of this in some regard, right? Yes. Like it's, it's worth remembering that Adam Silver and the entire NBA league office really is a representation of the owners in this. And there needs to be a little bit of pushback because we have seen time and time again, players sign that big contract to stay with their current team. And then a year, two years later, will ask out, have a very specific list of teams that they want to go play for and threaten not to perform their services or wink, wink, maybe it won't go well for anybody if I end up somewhere else. And that is just a a lot of control to concentrate in the hands of a handful of players who can actually pull that off. At the end of the day, the players who are superstars are always going to hold the most power in the league. And I think that this is a circumstance where the owners would like to pull some of that back just a little bit. I think what you said is right, that this is the NBA acting on behalf of owners and ownership, trying to rein some of this in. I think that there are probably a lot of owners league wide that are looking at the Damian Lillard situation and going, could we be next uh, that have star players like Philadelphia maybe is looking at this with Joel Embiid and saying, Oh shit. Like, could we be next where Joel Embiid requests a single destination and we have to work within the confines of Joel Embiid if the Damian or if the James Harden trade does not go well, right? If you're a player, I still think that you probably take the money and go. Yeah. Because I think that you can still make things uncomfortable enough for your own team while you are under contract in doing things like this. It's really funny. Like there's this other thing that's happening in the NFL right now with Jonathan Taylor. Right. And it's been hard for me not to draw parallels to what's happening there and what's happening here, because in the NFL, it's much more of an owner driven league than the NBA is. The NBA is a lot more of a player driven league whereas the NFL is more of an owner-driven league in terms of the power dynamics. Part of that is just the nature of the sport, right? One singular force can have such a drastic impact on an NBA game compared to any non-quarterback in the NFL, essentially. So it's hard for me not to look at this and say, okay, I wonder if NBA owners are looking at what's happening in the NFL where Jim Irsay is like strongly telling Jonathan Taylor, look, despite you hiring a new agent, despite you uh, requesting a trade in my trailer, apparently, according to Stephen Holder, who like literally got a photo of Jonathan Taylor walking into Jim Irsay's trailer to have a conversation. We are not going to move you. And I wonder if NBA owners kind of want some of that. A little bit. And by the way, like some of the way that people are, it's so interesting the way that this is all covered, by the way, too. Yeah. The way that, like, I read Greg Doyle's 
uh, column in the Indianapolis Star about Jonathan Taylor. And I, I think Greg is like one of the best columnists in like literally uh, in the uh, in the United States uh, for his local uh, local contingency. I thought that article was like kind of gross, to be honest. I thought that there was so much disrespect shown to an agent that if you know anything about the UFC, uh, Malki Kawa is like one of the significant power brokers in mixed martial arts and is now breaking into the uh, NFL. Like he just got, if I remember correctly, Shaq Leonard, like a hundred million dollar contract. Like this is a person that has real power. And like, he was talking about like how Jonathan Taylor got admitted to Yale and everything. And Malki Kawa went to Miami Dade college. And it's just like, well, that's being an agent does not matter where you went to college at the end of the day, especially with somebody that has shown real credentials uh, in being an agent, maybe just in another sport. And honestly, in this, in the NFL as well, given the Shaq Leonard piece of it. Uh, But the way it's covered is so interesting to me because you see this big time local columnist come out totally in favor of the team, completely against the star player I don't think we see NBA columnists doing that like point point blank. Like I've, I've not seen many people in Portland straight up, like call out Damian Lillard. There's been, so there have been negative articles, but nothing with that level of like ferocity. Uh, Just the way that Greg phrased it, I thought was a little bit gross at times in, in terms of some of the dynamics at play there. But the way it's covered, and it's just fascinating to me across the board. Well, I I think in the NBA, we've seen this story a few times before where, you know, with running backs right now in the NFL, like it is a, a, an overarching saga that, that the entire position is kind of going through. So it's this huge storyline and it's pitting players against owners in a real way. We've seen this time and time again in the NBA where we have, you know, star player who requests trade and has a, a short list of candidates that he wants to play for what's going to happen. I also think with Dame in Portland, there tends to be a little bit more understanding of the reason behind the trade request. It's not necessarily about money. It's more so about situation. And he has been loyal to Portland and given back and, and given a lot to that organization for a number of years. I think there's just yeah. a little bit of sympathy that goes to Dame to the point where he's not going to be the one that's really dragged through the mud here. I I think the distinction that I want to make in some regard for any of this is the memo that came out from the NBA is a protective move to owners. And it's a strong signal sent to agents and players that you don't always get to call the shots in in this, in terms of where you go to play and what power you have to sit out. But I don't think that's the distinction between the Jonathan Taylor situation and the Damian Lillard situation. One player is just like asking out. Like he's like, I, if you're not going to pay me, I want to go somewhere that will pay me. I don't care where that is. As long as they are willing to pay me. The Lillard situation is him asking for a specific place in theory, at least. Right. And uh, again, as much as I hear the NBA signaling that probably not a good idea to say, Hey, I'm not going to play for any other team. This is the only place I'll I'll play. I'll hold out, or I won't report, or anything else like that. The NBA needed to send that message, but at the end of the day, I don't think this changes where Damian Lillard lands. I think that the logistics of everything that you and I talked about on the last yeah. podcast still heavily point to Miami. I still think yeah. that there would be some fear for another team 
of should I really go out and try to acquire Damian Lillard? And maybe it's not about is he going to even play for me this season? It's is it worth giving up that asset for a guy who might be angling to move again? Well, realistically, the offer that you have to top is three first round picks, two pick swaps, Jaime Hawkes, and then whatever Miami gets for Tyler Hero and like a three team construction, right? Let's say it's like a first in a young player for Tyler Hero, something like that, right? So like basically you have to top four picks, Jaime Hawkes, another interesting young player, and two pick swaps. That's actually like a really big offer. I'm not sitting here saying it's what Damian Lillard is worth. And if I was Portland, again, I'd be pretty pissed about the way the market has borne itself out at this point. But that is a substantial offer for a player that is a little bit older where we don't think the last couple of years of that contract is going to be, you know, commensurate in value with what he will be paid. You have to be able to win a title within the next two years, basically. And the number of that limits the market artificially. The salary limits the market artificially. Like if you're Boston, I got, frankly, like, I don't know if Wick Grossbeck's going to be like, look, I want to pay Jason Tatum, Damian Lillard and Jalen Brown, $180 million combined in 2027, because that's not a fake number. That's the actual number that it would cost in order to do that. So the money artificially deflates it. There are a limited number of teams. Like you and I talked a little bit about New Orleans. I think New Orleans could realistically pose like more of a threat than what I originally thought maybe if they decided to go for this. Ultimately, they have to make a decision on whether or not they want to. And I have no idea if they want to. But I think they could present a very compelling offer at the end of the day. Miami, if if I was Miami, I would be making actually like a real offer. I would not be saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep Tyler Hero. Oh, yeah, I'm going to you know try and play hardball with Caleb Martin. I'd be making the best offer and I'd be like, look, I want Damian Lillard. I want to pair him with Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo. And I want to move forward with this, Uh, especially now that the league is involved and especially that uh, this is starting to get a little bit more complicated. Yeah. And as free agency winds down, you have fewer third teams as trade partners that have cap space available or the assets that they want to move. Like once you get into August and a lot of this free agency stuff settles down a lot more, it's, it's just, a lot more complicated to find different trade partners around the lead. I, I think they got to find just their best offer, put that forward and try to close the deal soon. I think you want to, ch- the thing that the, I don't think that the league statement changes the market. I do think that the league's statement potentially speeds it up a little bit in terms of, okay, we might need to get this going a little bit and get like a real offer on the table. We're not going to, we might not be able to fleece the Portland trailblazers in the way that maybe we hoped when Goodwin was really pressuring the rest of the league in theory, uh, according to this statement by the NBA, where they say uh, the relevant teams provided descriptions of their communications with Goodwin that were mostly though not entirely consistent with Goodwin's statements to us. You know, we'll see. Yeah. I'm not totally sure. Yeah, mostly, but not entirely sure. Yeah, and by the way, if you're if you're poor, if you're Miami, 
if you offer Tyler Hero to Portland, the onus is not on Portland to find what no. to do with Tyler Hero. The onus is on Miami to That's find right. a third team for Tyler Hero. Uh, because you're the one trying to get Damian Lillard. You're the one with the real necessity to go out yep. and make something like this happen. And that's so, why that's why sooner is always going to be a benefit to them. With like August, late August and September, it's really hard to pull something like that off. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to dive in. Literally, the next voice you're going to hear is Adam Spinella. He is taking over the show uh, in ten seconds. All right, folks, I'm doing it. I'm taking over and I'm standing up for myself. I'm grilling Sam tonight with a bunch of questions that I have uh, prearranged here. Some of them draft philosophy, some of them player rankings, player preferences. Give me a couple teams that you're watching this coming year. Uh, we're going to start on that section because I, I think it's, it's going to be really fascinating to set the tone for the philosophy later down the road once we hear some of Sam's responses. But before we get into that, since I'm taking over, I've got to put my best Sam Vicini impression forward. So indulge me for one second. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Spinella. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Sam Vicini is in the building. We are doing a deep dive on all the questions that I have for him related to the NBA. It's going to be a great time. And Sam... With that in mind, I got my first question for you. Okay. In, in the upcoming 2023-24 NBA season, please rank the following four teams from highest to lowest win total. The Minnesota Timberwolves, the Oklahoma City Thunder, the New Orleans Pelicans, and the New York Knicks. Okay, so Timberwolves, Thunder, Pelicans, Knicks. Okay. I'm going to go, and how, how much of this is us, like, like, are we saying Zion's healthier, or are we just, like, going yeah. and guessing, basically? I think we're going and guessing here. We have to, right? Like, I, I would okay. make this assuming that Zion's probably going to be healthy, but not, like, 82 games healthy. Yeah, so maybe, like, 40 games healthy. Okay. <laughs> um, I will go. I think my answer might surprise people a little bit, actually. I think I'm going to go off the top of my head right now. Minnesota first. Okay. Knicks second. Pelicans third. Thunder fourth. Thunder fourth. Interesting. So the, the reason for the Thunder being fourth is I think that there are going to be a few more growing pains than what maybe people recognize. And I also think they're going to play – they're not going to, like, shorten their rotation and play their eight best guys, you know, 30 minutes a night. They have so many players on their team yeah. that, like, if you were making me come up with a win range – 
I think they have the smallest win range out of all of those teams. I think they will win somewhere between 40 and look, their upside is probably 50 games, but like, I feel pretty good that they're going to win 40 games just because they can go through injuries. They can go through a number of different things and still be okay. Because like Aaron Wiggins is like their 12th man right now. And that's like Aaron Wiggins is an NBA player. I think that the growing pains with Chet early could be pretty real. Insofar as like he's skinny and I think he'll be a great impact player defensively. I think that offensively it might take him a little bit more time than what people think. And I think they win at least 40 games. Uh, I'm all in. I'm all in on the Thunder. The Thunder are like my favorite team. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, with this, there is no team I will watch more games of next year than the Oklahoma City Thunder. So they they won forty games last year, and I think it's going to be pretty close to the same again. You do, you do. this year, yeah. Okay. I think there's going to be like a bit of a you know a slow build in Oklahoma okay. City. Okay, and I think they're going to win like fifty in twenty twenty four twenty five, but I think that they're still integrating pieces. They're still working through some things. I think they maybe win forty two this year. Okay. Something like that. Number three, I said the Pelicans. You did. I just don't have enough faith in the Pelicans getting full health from Zion. It's still kind of a weird team, in my opinion, where you, you just look at the roster of what they have. Your starting lineup is probably what? You're going CJ, Zion, Brandon Ingram, Jonas. And then I think it probably has to be Trey Murphy. Murphy, So I think Trey Murphy is just better than Herb Jones. As good as Herb is. Like, I think that you probably do that, but you could probably make a case that like Herb and Larry Nance, like you maybe want to split their minutes a little bit more. I think this is still a bit of a funky roster that is ripe for a trade in some way. Hmm. And we will see where that goes. It's either ripe for a trade or they're still very young. That's the other piece of this that I think is like way underrated right now. Like Zion is still 23. Brandon Ingram is still 26. Herb Jones is 25. Dyson Daniels is 20. Jordan Hawkins is 21. You know, Trey Murphy is 22, right? 23, whatever he is. Alvarado is 25. It's, it's going to take, it's going to take a bit of time for them. I think still, even though they have CJ and they have Jonas to kind of lift the tide. If you could tell me that CJ was going to play 70 games and Zion was going to play 70 games and Brandon was going to play 70 games, I would have them at the top. I think they're the most talented team of this group. But I just don't trust them to stay healthy at the end of the day with all of these pieces. So they won 42 games last year. And how many of them did Zion play in? Uh, 30-ish, if I remember correctly, something along those lines. I can pull that up while we're talking. So the, uh, the reason I ask that is I think the Thunder... 29. Pel- yeah, the Thunder and Pelicans are related in some regard where they're getting a talented player back in their front court who is unique. Yep. The Thunder get Chet, the Pelicans get Zion. And I don't think they've lost much. Either team has lost much from last year to this year. No. They've got younger guys, and they're continuing to get better. How much of a leap forward do these uh, these teams take in a really talented West? Whereas the other two teams that we'll talk about, Minnesota and New York, are 
banking on continuity while having already a couple all-stars and guys who are a little bit older on their roster to see if that's going to take them to the next level. So here's what I would say. I'm projecting Zion to play like 40 games next year. Um, That's the reality, I think, of where we're at with Zion. I hope I'm wrong. I I hope that, like, if I was betting on a win total over under, and that's the way I'm kind of thinking about this. Sure. I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that Zion's going to play more than 40. Like, I I think that that has to go into the calculus. I think that if they play, if you would tell me Zion and Brandon Ingram are playing 140 games, they're going to win 50 plus games this year. Truly. Like, I I think that they are really that talented. The problem is that Zion has played about 134 games over the course of the three years that he has played. That's about what? 40 a year, 42 a year, something like that, 44 a year. But that also does not count the fact that he missed an entire season due to his foot injury. So the number would actually be lower than 40 games. So I think I'm being reasonable saying that Zion plays 40 games. Uh, The the other sneaky piece of this, though, is that like Brandon Ingram sneaky misses games. like, And people don't really recognize it enough. If you look back through the last six years of his career, Brandon Ingram has played 59, 52, 62, 61, 55, 45 games. I think that projecting Brandon Ingram for 60 games is pretty reasonable. So you're talking about Brandon Ingram and Zion in my projection here, missing 60 or so games, because that's what history tells us is going to happen. If they don't miss that many games, if they miss 25 games, again, I think this team wins 50 games. But I think you kind of have to bake in the injury stuff to the calculus on some level, not, not on like an overwhelming level, but on a reasonable level that, you know, gives, gives you some, gives you some leeway. I guess they have a really wide range of outcomes. So thunder, you think small window Pelicans, really large window. And then the wolves, they were your number one on that list. Yeah, the, the Wolves are number one for me because I think that they are just an awesome regular season team in theory still. I think that Anthony Edwards probably takes another step forward. I think Jaden McDaniel sneaky takes a step forward. And then you have Carl Towns and you have Rudy Gobert. And I think that getting a full summer together yeah, and I think that getting them more synergy and chemistry together will help them become just an offensive juggernaut in the regular season, especially with a table setting point guard like Mike Conley now, as opposed to D'Angelo Russell, who is at his best, in my opinion, where he can just go play and like, doesn't have to worry about setting the table, you know, having to get this guy involved and then get that guy involved and then go get Jaden McDaniels, four shots, you know, in the second quarter. Right. I, I think he is best when he can just go play and be reactive and be uh, who he is as a you know player. Mike Conley played for years with Rudy Gobert. I, I think that Towns and Gobert should work in theory in the regular season. I think the Wolves probably win pretty close to 48, 50 games, something like that. Interesting. Interesting. Because last year, Towns missed a ton of time with injury, too. He only played yeah. 20, 29 or 31 games or t- yeah, 29. Um, and they were 15 and 14 in the games that he played. 
So barely over 500. And some of those came without Rudy, I think. But uh, the, the, the way that this team gels, having a full offseason together, another year of continuity is going to be fascinating. And, and you stuck the Knicks in the two spot here between Minnesota and New Orleans. What's your take on the Knicks this year? I think they're going to be pretty close to what they were last year. Look, I think that they're kind of treading water still, trying to find that star that comes available, uh, you know, whoever it may be. Uh, I, I have a sneaking suspicion on who I think they might be going for, and I think that it's pretty obvious. But uh, I think they're kind of treading water at the end of the day for now. Like, they still have Julius Randle. They still have Jalen Brunson. They still have R.J. Barrett. They're going to get more games of Josh Hart this year, which I think helps them uh, in the long run. I think Emmanuel quickly probably takes another step forward, especially if he doesn't get an extension and is in the middle of a contract year. Uh, you know, Mitchell Robinson only played 59 games. Maybe he gets to the point where he plays, uh, you know, a few more games than that. Although he is another one that has sneaky missed, you know, 15, 20 games here or there. So, yeah, I think this Knicks roster is very similar to what they won last year. I think they win 45 to 50 games and they're, they're just really solid and terrific again. All right. Yeah, I, I buy that. Not too dissimilar from where what I would have. I think I'd flip New Orleans and New York just because I love yeah. the up the upside of the Pelicans. But uh, I, I think that's pretty similar to where I would be on them. All right. Well, part of why I did that, too, is that the Knicks are in the East, and I think the West is a bloodbath, and I think there's yeah. just a lot more uh, room for uh, mess in the West. Sure. There's always room for mess in the West. Cause I mean, you look at the bottom of the wet, like every team outside Portland and, you know, probably is getting better and they're yeah. going to start creeping up from the bottom here. So the, the West is, is definitely going to be fascinating this year. Speaking of, we've got one team here that's in the limelight for our next question, Sam, 10 years from now, which of the following players will we look at as having the most successful NBA career? Jalen Green, Alperin Shengun, Jabari Smith, Amen Thompson, or Cam Whitmore. Ten years from now, who will we look at as having the most successful NBA career? Okay, so it was Jalen Green, Alperin Shengun, Jabari Smith, Amen Thompson, Cam Whitmore. The five Rockets guys. Okay, Amen Thompson is my answer. I don't really have to think all that much about it. Um, Amen is such a special athlete. And he's already shown, even in like the 30 minutes he played at Summer League, that like he's working through some of the mid-range stuff uh, to where I just completely buy him uh, becoming a real force offensively and and being, uh, you know, a 20-point-per-game scorer that also averages like eight rebounds and plays like elite-level defense. The other thing is that I think Amen is so singularly focused on winning in yeah. such a real way that I think his game, even though he doesn't shoot it, he'll find a way to impact winning at a substantial level, be it, okay, I'm going to use all of my energy and athleticism defensively to be like the biggest impact player I can be. Um, I'm going to use my genius level, like court vision and feel for the game to be everything that I can be in that regard. Uh, my athleticism is unbelievable. I'm just going to be the transition force that I can be right. Uh, I had a man graded higher in the draft than all of these players, uh, even Jabari Smith. Like I like Jabari Smith quite a bit last year. And yeah, I, I would have a man. I had a man higher in terms of grade than what I had Jabari. And yeah, a, a man I think is the best prospect on this team. And I would pretty easily say a man. I would too. 
Um, and part of the reason I asked that question is, is to see the long-term ramifications in Houston. If they are going mm-hmm. to get a guy like Amen Thompson, they have, and try to build a successful roster around him, does that yeah. come at the expense of any of the young players that they currently <laughs> already have on their roster? The, the answer is it could. And I, I want to, if I was Houston, I would not be operating under the assumption that it has to at this point. Sure. I don't think there's any reason to speed up the process if I was them. I, I would want to see how all of these guys look together and how they play together. Like m- my immediate reaction is I have some worries about what the floor spacing would look like on an Alperin Shangun, Amen Thompson duo. Yeah. But in theory, like the ball movement that that duo could provide could really offset that floor spacing because you could get all sorts of really interesting cuts and all sorts of really interesting, uh, you know, motion involved with those two to really make it work. So my immediate reaction is I think that it could be that. Like, I, I think that on paper, the Shangun Amen Thompson fit is a little bit questionable from a floor spacing perspective. And I generally just have more questions about Shangun on defense than what other people do, it seems, in the public sphere. Me too. Yeah. But you know what? Like, Amen Thompson being the guy that slithers around ball screens and like fights his ass off, that probably makes, you know, uh, Alperin's life a little bit easier. I, I will say, in general, you know, under Ime Yudoka, it felt like Boston did like play a lot of drop. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you watched even more Boston than I did. It depended on who was, who you know, who they were guarding and how they wanted to guard it. I think with Rob Williams, they did a lot more drop than they did this year yeah. with, uh, with under Missoula. Yeah. And like they would like switch a little bit with Horford, obviously, but like yeah. switching is just not an option with Shangun. You can't no. switch with Alperin. Um, it's either like, are you going to show and recover or are you going to play drop? And I feel like I haven't seen Boston play a lot of show and recover uh, in ball screens under EMA for that year, at least. So my assumption is they might go into it playing drop as opposed to like a show and recover. And I think Alperin is more of a show and recover guy. Uh, You know, we're we're spending a lot of time talking about that fix. I think that's like the most interesting one. Uh, I think a man is the kind of guy that like will really accentuate Jalen Green's game. I think that Amen is the kind of guy that will really accentuate Jabari Smith's game as well because he'll be able to get him on kickouts. He'll be able to collapse the defense and find Jabari open, and Jabari will be able to hit that like one dribble pull-up game at a really high level. He'll create advantages for Jabari in the way that Jabari, I think, struggles doing so off the dribble himself. So, yeah, to me, it's Amen. Amen is the one that like kind of stirs the drink. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm with you in that um, regard. Ooh. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say definitively that Shangun cannot play and switch. He did well switching in his rookie season. No, he did not. That's I I get that Rockets fans want to try and like portray this like Alperin is like okay on defense thing. He has good hands, and I think that is a point of his defensive ability that is worth complimenting and you know saying very positive things about. Like I, I do genuinely think that he's not like a lost cause because his brain works as fast as it does on defense, Mm -hmm. but like his feet don't move quick enough to switch. It's, 
especially in high leverage situations in the playoffs. Like it's just not going to work. But you can, I I think that there's a good chance he could be okay in a show and recover situation. He won't be like a significant positive in the way that like, I think Jokic can actually at times be a positive in a show and recover situation, but yeah, he can't, we we do need to be honest and say like, he can't switch. I think. Yeah. Well, and show and recover is only as, impactful as the help that you have around the basket while your big man is hedging those screens. So I think where Jabari Smith has never really won me over is as a secondary rim protector. I think there are a lot guy, a lot of guys who play the four who are better at that than him. I don't know if I trust Jalen Green in that type of role, even though he's got athleticism to be able to get to the rim. Amen Thompson is probably going to be the one guarding a lot of those ball screens long-term. So Look, there are a lot of schematic things that any team that has Alper and Shangun needs to work their way through. But by and large, like my takeaway with this yeah. is, is that it's too soon. To, like, I want to see what it looks like in Houston because these yeah. are five really fun young players who could all fit. But the first domino that I would be looking at to fall if things aren't great would actually be, be Shangun. And I know that's very upsetting for a lot of Rockets fans to hear because they love him. Well, and to me, it's the most interesting piece of it for me, I guess, is like people are people know that like I'm a really big Cam Whitmore fan. Like I would have Whitmore fifth on this, like undeniably. And I love Cam and think he's fantastic. I mean, here's what I would ask you. Who would you have at second on that list? Uh, Yeah, Jalen, probably. I just think he's he's, going to put up a lot of numbers. I think he's going to put up a lot of numbers. I think I would still go Jabari. And, and look, like I, I, I'm maybe too high on Jabari, but I, I think that it's hard to teach 6'10 and like the ability to shoot at the level he can. And he's mobile enough to defend. And I I, I think I'm probably a little bit higher on you than his help defense. Uh, sure. I think that this year it was not awesome all the time just because he was a rookie and was still learning. Um, and I agree with you that like the rim protection help defense is never always. Yeah. Uh, at the level you want it to be for him. Like some people thought that maybe he might be able to play the five at some point. I I don't know that I'm there on that. Uh, I think that it's probably more that you use him as a four that like flies around and is mobile defensively. Yeah. All right. Well, that that's a lot of Houston chatter, but uh, let's, let's move to another question here. Question number three for Mr. Vicini. Two years into their careers, which or or, or shorter, which of the following players do you have the most faith in to retire with as many all NBA appearances as possible? Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, Paolo Bancaro. Who retires with the most all NBA appearances? Awesome question. It's a fantastic question. I think I'd go Mobley. Why? The defense is so good already. Like, truly, the defense is – he went from being a guy that I thought deserved, and and rightfully, I think, in some circles, got all rookie or all defense consideration as a first-year player. Like, if you look at his all-defense voting shares as a first-year player, he ended up with – as the 15th-ranked player uh, in terms of votes – uh, in all defense last season. That's pretty wild, in my opinion. Uh, f- for him to end up there as a rookie, I mean, I can't – I don't think we're going to see many more situations like that. Yeah. 
And then last year, obviously, he ends up, uh, if I remember correctly, I believe he finished third for Defensive Player of the Year yeah. uh, and was finalist for the award and was deservingly so, in my opinion. Uh, the defense is so good that he is just going to play such a significant role on winning teams for the next decade, frankly. Like tr- truly, like you look at the way that yeah. the, the way you make all NBA teams is you have to be first and foremost, I think, on a winning team for the most part. Like it's really hard to make all NBA teams if you're not on a winning team. I know that, you know, Luca made all NBA last year. Lillard made all NBA last year. But it's really, really hard if you're not on a winning team. And I think Mobley is going to be on a winning team for a long, long time moving forward. The other piece of it for Mobley is I think that a lot of the offensive skill set last year in terms of his improvement went under the radar. He shot way better from two point range and around like the basket than what he did as a rookie. And I think in part it was because a, you know, certainly Donovan Mitchell brought more gravity away from the basket and opened some things up for him. But there was almost always still because nobody really gave a shit about the three man uh, in Cleveland, there was almost always still somebody in the lane there. And plus Jared Allen presents his own yep. uh, spacing conundrums as well. Evan Mobley shot almost 60% from two point range last year. And he did so on more self-created attempts than what you would think. So okay. I think the strength and I think that the uh, ability to withstand contact showed real growth last year. And I think that that's just going to continue to improve and improve and improve. And that's the biggest thing for him. He has the ability to handle the ball. He has the ability to finish around the basket. Like he has the touch level to do so. I think as he gets stronger and stronger and gets up to like, you know, 235 pounds or so, because he's probably like 215, 220 right now. He adds like 15 more pounds of muscle as he gets to like 25 years old as opposed to 22 years old. That's five pounds a year. Like it's not asking a lot by the time he gets into the prime of his career. I, I love Cade. I-, I truly do. And I'm still very in on Cade, but I would bet on, I think, Mobley at this point to do it. The Cade part of this is so fascinating to me because he's spent most of his first two years in the league injured and not playing. We also, I think, trust the spacing around him to optimize what he brings to the table less than we do of Bancaro or, you know, the impact that Mobley can have as a play finisher on offense and a great defender. I also think there's a lot of competition at the guard positions in ways that there aren't necessarily for maybe guys like Paolo or even Mobley who could swing as either a forward or a big, I don't even know how all NBA right now or in the future is going to represent positions that that is constantly changing as we go through time. But Cade is just, he's still my guy. Like that is who I would bet on here because I think he's the most cerebral, impactful basketball player when he's at his best, when he's healthy, when he's surrounded by the right talent. And I think eventually the spacing, the realization that, okay, we need to find ways to optimize Cade Cunningham more than anything else. That's what's going to happen in Detroit. It may not be there right now, but eventually I will bet on that. So if we're taking this in a career arc, I'm still going to bet on Cade. And I totally get that. Like I, I love Cade and think he's going to be absolutely outstanding. It's hard to find players that have this level of basketball IQ 
in my opinion, and just processing ability. And his ability to play both on and off the ball, I think, is going to work really, really well in Detroit. And I like, I do think that all three of these guys are going to make all NBA teams. Like, I'm not part of this is not denigrating one by picking another, in my opinion. This is, you know, Adam just asking me a question about like essentially who I think is the best player of this group, right? And I think that Mobley still has the most room to grow, I guess I would say. Like, being seven foot, having the agility, the mobility, the athleticism he does, as he gets stronger, it's going to be so, 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 so ridiculously hard in order. It's going to be hard to stop him, I think, getting to the rim. Like, there are some real, like, lower level giannis outcomes, I think, for Evan. Still, oh, interesting. Uh, like he, we... he won't get to where Giannis is like 250 in a brick shit house, but like if you combined like Giannis and Chris Bosch, maybe like somewhere in the middle of those two, I think there are some real outcomes there offensively for him. Yeah, I'm just I'm not that high on Mobley's offense. I, I'm not quite there. I understand the argument about his his defense and how dominant that is. I, I think the winning team argument and certainly Cleveland is a you know head and shoulders above Detroit and Orlando right now. I am yeah. not a huge fan of, of Mobley's impact on offense. I, I think that he's a, a below average floor spacer and that's clear by the numbers. I, I worry about face up rim touch generation. Like he kind of gets caught in that mid range area a little bit too much for my liking. He started to convert more in that like three to 10 foot range. But but isn't that of- just a strength issue though? Even if it's a strength issue, if, if he gets there two more times a game, like I'm, to me, that's a that's a win from the strength. It's not him evolving his handle and turning into a Giannis who's getting designed plays to try to create for himself off the bounce. Like I, I'm not, I'm not quite there. So, in their twenty age twenty one season, Giannis averaged sixteen point nine points, seven point seven rebounds, four point three assists. Uh, shot 50.6% from the field, 53.7 from two-point range. Evan Mobley averaged 16.29 rebounds, 2.8 assists, uh, shot 55% from the field, 59% from two-point range. His numbers are pretty close. Like, And again, I don't think he's going to reach that level. I think that his body is just not going to develop to the level that Giannis is, did because, like, for instance, as uh, F. Scott Foster says in the comments – uh, Mobley has no offensive bag. Generally, like I, I'm kind of with that, and I understand mm-hmm. the point that he's trying to say. Like I, I think that there's not a lot off the handle with Evan. The thing is that when you're so big and so long, you're just kind of able to create offense, especially in the spacing-oriented NBA that we currently exist in now. Um, it, it's yeah, it, it's it's pretty hard. It, it's pretty hard, in my opinion. Uh, to to look at him and say that there isn't a lot. And then, like, as Brian K says, like, Mobley led the league in dunks. A lot of those were self-created. A lot a lot more of them were not self-created, right. playing with Darius Garland, obviously. Uh, the, the Garland and Mobley synergy, I think, is going to be a big help to Mobley yeah. uh, early in his career. Uh, it, it, it's really, really interesting. It's really, really interesting, I think, to try and watch where Mobley is going to get to. He's the one I'd bet on, given the fact that, frankly, he's the one that impacts winning most right now. He does. Like, 
truly. He is the one that impacts winning the most right now. And he is the one that I think still has the most room to grow while already averaging, you know, 16 points and nine rebounds a game. So I also think part of this is trying to understand the, the all NBA aspect of this, right? Like how much of this is an offensive voted award versus a defensive voted award that even if you have all of yeah. these guys who are dominant defenders, if you can average 28 and, you know, have efficiency while doing so, isn't good, a guy like Dan Caro going to climb up in that ranking a little bit? I know where you're going with that, and I don't disagree with it. I think that on some level we're trying then to project like what the voting body of all NBA looks like right? Uh, moving yeah. forward. And I just don't know what that's – if that's going to be the case. Like my, my guess is that the voting body will move forward toward valuing defense more. How much will it value defense more and how much will it value winning more? I, I frankly don't know, but – your point's not invalid. Like, I don't mean to like denigrate what yeah. you're saying. It's just that like so much of like, you know, trying to parse through the all NBA question is like, how does the voting body change moving yeah. forward? Um, and I would hope it changes somewhat drastically. Like seriously, NBA, call me, give me an all NBA vote. Um, like that, that's smart. But at the same token, I think that it's hard. It's hard to know. I guess is what I would say. Sure. Which I, I totally get. All right, Sam, anything you want to add on those three players or we move on? Yeah, I think that we didn't talk probably enough about Paulo. Like Paulo's incredible. Um, he's absolutely unbelievable as a shot creator. And I totally buy him as a shot creator moving forward. The big question for me is where does the shooting get to? If he's a 35% three point shooter at some point, um, the ceiling is a lot lower than if he gets to like, you know, the level Julius Randall got to. And I don't know that we've seen like Julius Randall's an outlier in terms of shooting, shooting growth. And I think a lot of people point to that as like, Oh, like Paulo will get to that level where Randall started to where he is now is kind of like outlier level yeah. growth. And I'm not saying it's impossible for Paulo to get there, but the diminishing returns I think are pretty real if he doesn't get there. And then you throw in the defense where there are like real substantial questions, I think on him. And then you throw in like how efficient he looked or inefficient. He looked later in the season as a rookie. And I don't want to overemphasize those aspects of it because I think he was outstanding. And I think he is going to be all NBA player moving forward, like for a long, long time. Like I, I think he will make, you know, if you set the over under for me at two and a half all NBA teams for Paulo, I would bet over. It's just, I also think that, you know, how he impacts winning is going to be interesting to me to track. I think he could impact it at a really high level. It's just, I want to see a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. The shooting is definitely an interesting one to watch there. I love Paolo too, but again, I think Kate is still my guy. I just want to see a full year of Kate, man. I just want it. To I do too. So. I will say like, Part of this with Cade, like the reason I didn't pick Cade is like, I don't know what the injuries look like right now. Um, And that's not me saying they're bad. That's not me saying they're good. I just don't know. And there's uncertainty there for me. Yeah. I mean, Cade is a wild card in some regard because he's only played at, you know, what, 50 career games somewhere around there. And then uh, Bancaro is one year in the league. Like there's just less of a proven track record with those two guys. 
Yeah. No, I'm with it. All right. Sam, the next question here are a bunch of rapid fire toss up. Who would you rather have for the next five years building your franchise? Okay. All younger players or assets. And you've got to give a quick and a why. One minute or less. All right. First up, Alperin Shengun or Walker Kessler? Oh, God. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. I'm going to go Shengun because I do think, oh, man. Yeah, I'm going to go Shangun because I think it's harder to find the skills that Shangun has offensively than it is to find the elite level defense that Kessler does. I think Kessler can be better than like the Clint Capella, Mitchell Robinson, you know, et cetera, tier of defensive center, Stephen Adams, everything like that. But to take him over Alperin, I think at this point, you'd have to be betting on him. You'd have to be betting on Kessler being like a consistent every year top three in defensive player of the year player. And again, I think that upside exists with him, but I don't think I would bet on that necessarily. Interesting. Yeah. This is a really tough one for me. So I'm, I'm glad that you reacted the same way. Uh, That's a I, great question. Like yeah. truly a great question. I probably go Kessler just because I like taking the safer route and I'd rather surround him with really good offensive talent and feel like you can maximize who he is and who your team is as a result of yeah. that. I feel like Shengun leaves you bare in a lot more areas and you have to really construct the perfect roster around him in order to survive defensively. I agree on that front, at least. I think that Kessler probably makes it easier to find other players. Like if I, if I was building my roster earlier in my team's development, I think I would take Kessler because I would want the team. I would want the flexibility of team building around Kessler. Like I know what Kessler is. I know what he's capable of. I know that I'm going to have a great defense moving forward. And that allows me to build in like a real way. With Shangun, we still have so many questions about what the defensive level is going to be, and yep. center is by far the most important defensive position. To where if I was in the middle of a rebuild and I felt like I had enough shooting and I felt like I had like this great four man who could be like an unbelievable defensive um weak side rim protector, I would take Kessler or I would take Shangun, I'm sorry. Yeah. Huh. I know. It's a tough That's one. a good one. It's a tough one. All right. We're moving in the to the vacuum, I think, Shengu. We're, we're, we're moving to the next one here. Jalen Williams or Shaden Sharp? Uh, Jalen Williams from Oklahoma City. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and look, I, I did a redraft in what, April, I guess. And I think I had Shaden at five. Like I was quite high on Shaden. And I had Jalen at like th- two or three, I think. Uh, I think Jalen's physicality and his length uh, and his strength create more uh, mismatches and create more problematic scenarios for defenders than Shaden's athleticism. And on top of it, I buy Jalen's handle way more uh, than I buy Shaden's handle. Uh, The thing that Shaden does that Jalen 
is just okay at his shoot it. Like you look at Shaden's catch and shoot numbers as a, as a rookie last year, they're ridiculous. He shot like 44% off of catch and shoots from three last year. Uh, yeah, I would go Jalen. I think Jalen's going to be an all-star and like a, you know, damn near a superstar. All right. Yeah. I, I go with Jalen too, but I wonder how we project Shaden's upside because he's such a fascinating player at this stage in his career with, you know, not having a real college season and, and real questionable tape coming into the draft process and then really hitting really hard in the final couple months of the season this year with Portland. Like where is the next ledge or leap for him? And are we underrating his upside to two years from now when he's the same age as a guy like Jalen? get to that level of production or not, or higher. Yeah. No, I, I think it's all reasonable. I, I would bet on what I've seen from Jalen, though. Okay. Again, toss up for who you'd rather have for your franchise the next five years. Josh Giddy or Asar Thompson? Not five and 15, you're saying? No. So yeah. you're saying not 15, but five years. Five years. You got five years for one of these two guys to build your franchise with. Uh, giddy because I think Asar is going to take, you know, two or three years to really learn how to shoot. If you were asking me this, like for the next 15 years, I'd probably say Asar, but I think that Giddy has figured out how to work around the shooting, uh, in such a substantial way that I would bet on him over the next five being more successful than Asar. And it, it sounds like you're, you're the way this question is being phrased, in my opinion, and tell me if I'm wrong, is not who is the best at the end of five years, right. but who is deriving the most value over For the, the course five. of the five-year period. Yes. For um, the next and I think Giddy, I think Giddy will derive the most value over that full five-year period, just being a couple of levels ahead yeah. of where Asar is right now. I agree. And it's more so because I tend to bet on the known commodity in a guy like yeah. Giddy, as opposed to Asar, who we just haven't seen that much of. And again, if you were asking who is the best player at the end of those five years, I I think it's like pretty equal um, and pretty close in my mind. But okay. given that you've asked like who would you have for the next five years, I would take Giddy and uh, be happy with it. Okay. Next one, same version of the, the same question. Who would you rather have for the next five years, Devin Vassell or Jeremy Sohan? Uh, same version of the answer at the end of the five years. I think I'd rather have Sohan, uh, for the next five years, I would rather have Vassell. Uh, I think Vassell is probably going to be pretty close, uh, in terms of, you know, I'm, yeah, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. I think even on both questions, the answer for the five years is like Vassell unequivocally. Uh, as long as you buy like Vassell being healthy and like, you know, he only played 38 games this year. Like he had the knee injury. Um, if we're saying health for both of these guys, I would say that Vassell will derive the most value over the next five years. He's just a couple of levels ahead of where so on is in his development to where like the difference in their value over the course of the next two years is going to be, I think somewhat drastic. Um, by the end of that fifth year, I would say probably Sohan is ahead. But if you're asking me 
the next five next who five. gives the most value to the Spurs over that five-year period, uh, I would say Vassell. I agree. I think Vassell is one of the most criminally underrated players in the NBA. I'm just a massive, massive fan of his. Like to me, yeah. this this one's pretty clear for me of all of these. I just I love. At the him. end of the five years, would you still take Vassell? You think? Yeah, I do. I I, I think he's going to keep keep going. Yeah, the thing with Vassell that he really got good at last year was creating his own shot in the mid range. Pull up game. Um, his mid range pull up game was absolutely outstanding last year. And you would think that he should be able to continue to get more catch-and-shoot three opportunities than what we've seen from him over the course of his career. I think he probably averages 20-plus a game this year. Um, again, like we'll see as long as he's healthy, right? But, yeah, I, I would take – I think I would take Vassell. Yeah, uh, this question, the question is easy. It's Vassell over the next five years. Yeah. If you're asking like career value, I think there's an interesting case. Okay. And last question in this regard, which asset do you view as being more valuable? Jabari Smith or the number one pick in the 2024 NBA draft? The number one pick just because of contract value. Um, okay. I think there's a very good chance that Jabari is a better player than anybody that's going to be in the 2024 draft. And I think that there's a good chance Jabari shows it this year. Uh, Getting the extra two years of, man, this is actually closer than what I thought now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Gotcha. Huh. Yeah. The answer, the answer actually might be Jabari. Hmm. Part of this is me like guessing and assuming that some player is like steps up and emerges into the number one pick right now uh, in a way that nobody has yet. Right. Like I'm assuming it's not going to be a 2013 year because 2013 type years are anomalies where we don't know who the number one pick is going to be. Um, and there's like nobody who is commensurate value of the number one overall pick. But I might change my answer to Jabari. Okay. I still I'm still in on Jabari. Like I Jabari at number two in 2022. I still think he's gonna be terrific. Mm-hmm. Just had an enormous summer league where like he really showcased that the confidence is back, the playmaking is back. I think the value is close. If you put a gun to my head, I guess I would say Jabari, but I think the value is close. I think uh, phrased differently. I think that it's very likely that Jabari is a better player than anybody in the 2024 draft class. But I also, or like any better than the number one pick in the 2024 draft class. But there is real value in getting the extra years and like cost control that comes with the two extra rookie scale years. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. I, I get that. All right, Sam switching gears just a little bit on, on kind of one of these questions here, pivoting more towards college basketball for a quick moment. 
Are there, or could you give us three current college basketball coaches who you think could make the jump to being a successful head coach in the NBA who have not done so already? So no Mike Woodson's, yeah. no Musselman's or Calipari's or things like that. Three yeah. coaches. Uh, so let, let's remove uh, Calvin Sampson from this as well, because Calvin was in the NBA for a while. Okay. And you know, very well, you know, I, I think would, I, I think Calvin would be incredibly successful uh, as an NBA coach. Uh, but let's remove him. Okay. Sure. Bill self is number one. I agree. Uh, Bill self, I think is by far the best uh, college coach offensively in the country. And, you know, in terms of creating sets in terms of working to the personnel that he has, like people forget, you know, over the last few years that, you know, the high low shit that Kansas used to run religiously, like with Cole Aldrich and Perry Ellis and all that stuff. And then he just completely switched gears to be able to play a well-spaced modern offensive scheme. And then like he switches back and forth. Like, you know, when they had Yudoka, they posted a shit ton. Like, you know, then they had like the four out year with like Svi and Kelly Oubre and stuff. Like, uh, I think that Bill is a genius and like, I'm yeah, that's, that's the guy I think that's number one with a bullet. Okay. Gets a little bit harder after this one. I'll give you a little bit of time to think on it. Like Bill self is unequivocally my number one as well. And it's yeah. the, the tactical genius that he brings in terms of the set plays as well. Like everything seems to work with him. He knows what ATOs to run at different times. I think he's been around enough high profile players in his time at Kansas that he would be able to handle himself well in, in that locker room and, and setting and just easily translate to what it's like in the NBA uh, I'm a I'm a really big fan of Bill Self. I've come around on him a lot over the last decade. Part of this is like me trying to find like the college coaches that have like the right temperament to do yes. this yep. in a real way. Like I have a lot of respect for Eric Musselman. I don't think NBA players would deal well with Eric Musselman. Um, right. right. We've, we talked about this with Izzo. Time. Uh, when yeah. uh, Ishbia got the, the son's job, we talked about this. Like I love Izzo to death as a coach. I don't know if he is the right coach for the NBA. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> this is difficult. This is very, this is definitely the hardest question you've asked so far. Is it really? Okay. Yeah. So I know you said no Kelvin Sampson. He was like a three a on my list when I tried to answer this question yeah. earlier. Kelvin to me is like just an obvious answer. Yeah. Um, I think Tony Bennett is an answer here. And I think I am going to go Tony Bennett. And I think mm-hmm. people think about it only in terms of like the offensive scheme that he runs. I think that he runs the scheme that he runs because it works in college. He's the right kind of temperament, I think, to do it. Uh, you know, he's not a screamer. He's not a yeller. He's going to be pretty low key. He's going to, I think, get guys to respect him as well. Uh, the thing that swings it for me is that you look at the guys who have gone to the NBA from the Virginia program and they've always been ready to play. Yes. Trey Murphy, um, you know, 
Joe Harris, Malcolm Brogdon, DeAndre Hunter, Ty Jerome is still sticking around the NBA. I think that the level of preparation that he gives these guys in order to succeed at a high level um, as professionals and like within the game, like I think that he demands a level of preparation that would be very successful toward the NBA uh, if you were there. And I think he'd adjust the offensive scheme as necessary uh, to work in the NBA. That's an interesting one. I, uh, I, yeah, I can, I can see the argument you're trying to make there. Bennett was not the first guy to come up on my list. Although I tried to think a lot about guys with prior NBA experience as a player, as an assistant who'd been around that game as being the type of temperament that would translate or at least know what they're getting into. The third one for me is I'm going to go off the board specifically for this. Okay. Um, Jerry Stackhouse. That's he was on my list. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Stackhouse would be an awesome NBA coach. Brilliant. X's and O's guy. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, You watch Vanderbilt's offense. The, The problem is not the like scheme that they're running. The problem is not the sets they're running. The problem is just, they don't have the dudes at this point. And when they got the dudes this year at Vanderbilt, guys like Liam Robbins, guys like Jordan, Wright. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They went 11 and seven in the SEC and I I think finished like tied for fourth in the league. Uh, You know, and look like Jordan Wright was like not an all SEC player. Ezra Magnon is not an all SEC, you know, caliber player. You know, Tyron Lawrence, not quite that level. You know, they did have one in Liam Robbins, but I think that what he is able to get offensively out of his teams, I think is pretty real. Uh, and, and I do want to throw in one other coach here, you know, Cleveland QB one brings up yeah. Chris Holtman. Same thing. I think Holtman would do a great job. I really do. Uh, I know that like, it's fun for Ohio state fans to shit on Chris Holtman right now. Chris Holtman's an outstanding basketball coach, he, I, uh, especially I, on the offensive end. And yes. especially from a temperament perspective, uh, he needs to figure out like answers on the defensive end. You're not going to hear me say otherwise as someone who has like a vested interest in the Ohio state program uh, being good, but the way he develops players, the way that he uh, coaches offense, he knows how to deal with spacing. He knows how to deal with a number of different things. I think Holtman's a really good answer here too. Yeah. And I'll just throw this out there. Chris Holtman runs the best practice I've ever seen. Probably watched 35 to 40 division one head coaches run a practice Holtman's still stands out in my mind as the best one. He, he he knows what he's doing. All right. Last college related question here. And then we can move on to some draft philosophy. All right. Which team this season at the college level are you most excited to watch and why? Oh, Marquette. I I fucking love Marquette. (laughs) If Oso Iguodaro is an icon, God among men. Tyler Kolek just running the show with Oso. The, the cool stuff with Oso is like, it's not the, you know, short role playmaking stuff. It's what he does before the short role playmaking stuff where like he'll clearly be reading and reacting to like what the defense is running. And he's so far ahead of what the he's defense so is. And frankly, where like his offensive players are, he's like telling his players like on the backside, hey, switch, you know, you guys you know, you guys flip, you know, the wing guy go down to the corner, corner guy come up to the wing, just flip. And it's going to create a mis, uh, mis- misdirection opportunity because no one's going to come and help on me. 
uh, whenever I catch the short roll and I'm going to drive and whichever guy helps, I'm going to kick out to you and it's going to be open. Right. I, I think it's also, uh, um, is like my favorite player to watch in the country by far. Um, and shout out to Adam Spinella was higher on Oso than, uh, I feel like anybody was. I, I loved Oso. I, I, yeah, I love Oso. Yeah. Um, honestly, this is like a future facing one. Okay. I'm fascinated by UCLA. Assuming Me. UCLA gets a day Mara and Burke Buyakton shell. Uh, that team will be unlike anything Mick Cronin has ever coached in his career, but also immensely talented and skilled between those two and Jan Vide. Like I have, you you can tell me that that is a pure disaster because they don't defend in the way that Mick wants them to defend. But then they also have like a Dembona flying around and they probably will defend in the way that they want him to defend because Adem is like crazy and so good on defense. Uh, Like the sneaky guy, they still have Dylan Andrews too. Dylan Andrews is really good. Good. Dylan Andrews like can really play. Uh, Then they have Stefanovic who can shoot. Like, man, that could be a really fun team. That like – they need to get done the Buyakton shell and a day Mara stuff. It feels like still. And it seems like based on John Rothstein's reporting that that's probably going to happen here within the next week. But like the offensive skill level on that team is enormous, like truly, truly immense. And how Mick Cronin has them operate, how he has them run that offense. Like, uh, I, I'm I'm truly fascinated by that in a way because like the, the thing that we talk about all the time with the day Mara is th- this is its own podcast. We'll do this as like a separate <laughs> podcast, maybe yeah. like in two weeks. Yeah. But the thing with a day Mara is like the, the level of passing and playmaking that he brings from sure. the center position is really, really high level. And I'm like trying to think back through, you know, mixed teams at Cincinnati and mixed teams like at UCLA and everything. And I can't remember like a big that could pass like that. Can you? No, I no one's popping out to me right now. Yeah. Cause like they had like the last couple of years were like Nasir Brooks and like Kyle Washington and like Octavius Ellis. Like those are the ones in my mind. But like none of them were really like passers and playmakers. You know what I mean? Yeah. So seeing Mick with that like central hub as a passer playmaker. um, Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know what that would look like, I guess. Well, you stole my two teams there because Marquette and UCLA were the two teams I'm most excited to watch this year. You you know what the best part of this is, by the way, don't they play? They play in Maui. They do. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's going to be fun. All right, Sam, do you want to take a quick commercial break here before we go to the the philosophy questions or we want to? No, we're good. Let's go. Just keep rolling. Let's roll. All right, Sam. So as we shift gears, a lot of this is going to be more about drafting and draft philosophy as opposed to just specific players. In 10 years from now, what type of player or position type will we look back on and see as obsolete for how the NBA game is played? You said in five years. In 10 years. 
in 10 years. 10 years. What position type will be obsolete? I or, don't or player type, right? It can be, you know, a, a guy who yeah. doesn't shoot necessarily. I think that obsolete is strong because like I don't think anything will ever be obsolete the way I, it's just not the way I think about basketball on some level, right? Like I think you can make anything work within a certain construct depending on how your team is built. The way I think of it in terms of like be, something being obsolete is how teams value the position or the archetype or player. And I think it's going to be like the, you know, middling efficiency scoring guards. Guys like, you know, I, I think that those guys will start to be valued a bit less and less. Um, Tyler Heroes, Anthony Simons is Tyrese Maxey's, et cetera, et cetera. I think that. I would never call these guys obsolete because getting buckets is never going to be obsolete truly in basketball. Like it's never going to be obsolete, but I think that if you can't defend your position, it's going to be harder and harder and harder in a well-spaced NBA to be, if you're like a little bit smaller and you have like middling efficiency as an offensive player on good volume, but you can't defend it all it's going to be really, really hard to have you on the court because there's just going to continue to be more and more space and ground to cover out there than what currently exists. And those guys, I think, will continue to probably get paid a little bit less and less and less. Whereas like Tyler Hero is getting, you know, $35 million or $30 million a year. Um, we're even seeing it like start to change a little bit already. Like mm-hmm. I think that you know, we're, we're going to see what happens with Tyrese Maxey. We're going to see what happens with Emmanuel quickly. And by the way, Emmanuel quickly can really fucking defend like at an okay. exceptional level, which is why I'd rather have him than some of these other guys. But yeah, I, I think that's a good one. I actually think dirty dancer brings up a really good one. Yeah. Non-switchable yep. power forwards. Um, that is like almost already kind of obsolete. Right. I feel like well, and, it, and that's, it's that's part of really why hard to have those guys out there. Yeah, that's part of why I already asked the question, right? Like I think of, uh, you know, Nikola Miritic or uh, Mirza Toledovic, like all of these guys who had interesting – Steve Novak a decade ago, like shooting specialist yeah. fours who couldn't really <laughs> defend and didn't have positional versatility, no real secondary rim protection skills. Like it's gonna, it's been hard to find those guys' minutes. Well, the, the great test of this this year is going to be Sasha Vizankov, who's been sure. one of the best players in Europe for the last three years now. And – is unbelievable on offense and is a, he is in quite literally the most perfect fit for his skill set offensively that you will find in the NBA playing off of Demonis Sabonis is an elite level cutter, elite level mover without the ball, an offense that truly really values his like quick release floor spacing and shooting. There is no team in the NBA that will value him more than what the Kings do on offense. And it's going to be really interesting to see how much he can play because the defense is like a real it's a real worry mobility wise for him yeah yeah so, you know the combo guard thing is interesting to me or these score first combo guards because for every like swing and i don't want to call it a miss right like getting a jordan pool or an anthony simons is not a miss by any means but i think you end up overpaying them for their value based Correct. on what they produce earlier in their career but in order to get a devin booker a jamal murray and that level of impact, 
you probably have to keep swinging on that type of position type. Like to me, it's, it's more so about the threshold of who makes it and who doesn't. And maybe it comes down to who adds more to their game than just scoring. Like Booker has become a lot better of a passer than we predicted early in his career. He's gone from having that reputation as a, a high volume chucker who doesn't impact winning to being one of the better guards in the entire NBA. Like, but, but Book was always so big though. He is like it, it was. It's it's different to me than like the player that the players I'm talking about. They're like a little sure. bit smaller, like have shorter arms. Like Book is like a big dude. Yes. Like if you look at like the height, you know, differential, like it might say that you know Tyler Hero is like an inch shorter than Devin Booker, but they play differently in terms of size and in terms of height. They do. Um, and Hero, I think, is big enough to almost graduate from this conversation a little bit. Um, it's it's more the small ones like someone mentioned bones highland in the comments here like bones i think is a good example of someone that like if you really can't defend at that size it's going to be hard for you um you know someone here brought up thomas robinson uh non-defending non you know passing uh, non-shooting bigs i think is a really good example of something that might be like totally obsolete yeah if they aren't already because it seems like it's trending in that direction right now yeah like i'm like trying to think of one in the nba right now (laughs) i don't i don't know if i could find one but yeah i mean like honest i mean like you look at look at how quickly it turned for andre drummond and andre drummond like developed as a passer um yeah it turned very 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 fast for him I mean, I would say those guys and then the smaller, like six, two and under point guards, those guys are already getting phased out. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think beyond that. Who's next? Right. Yeah. So it is, it's hard. It is hard. It is. It's interesting. I'm like trying to now like go through more like positional archetypes to like try and think through it. Yeah. it's so fundamentally like almost goes against the way I think about basketball on some level, because like, I really do think about basketball as like in from a team building perspective is like, you can make certain things work within the construct of making other decisions on your roster. Right. And part of what makes team building easier or harder is based on the, the, Uh, I'm trying to think of like the word, the constraints that you put yourself in by taking a certain player, by taking a certain stylistic player. Um, And then having to build around that player, like the Kings have made a conscious decision to build around Damanis Sabonis, who has inherent defensive limitations that we saw in the playoffs this year. And that we knew existed when they went out Mm -hmm. to try and acquire him. But, is he just so good that it doesn't matter? Right. Um, in Demonis's case, I think the answer is yes. And they've done as good of a job as anybody is building around him, uh, as you can see. So sure. it, it, it's hard. It's, it's an interesting question. Okay. Well, I got another interesting one for you here then, Sam. What was the biggest lesson that you have learned as a scout the hard way? As in a player that you really liked, who you missed on, and it forced you to change the way that you evaluate or value certain traits as a result. (laughs) I have thought a lot about Jalen Suggs 
in this regard because I really liked Suggs quite a bit. I'm trying to think who else I've thought about in this regard. Like, it's easier for me to, like, pinpoint specific players. Right. I've thought a lot about... I wasn't as high as like the internet was on Jarrett Culver, but I had him like in the same range that NBA teams did, like somewhere like, you know, five, six, seven, something like that in that draft. Um, uh, it's easier for me to think about it in terms of like reflecting on yeah. players. Like, yeah. huh. I think that like maybe Marvin Bagley stands out in this regard. I think that like maybe the biggest lesson in general that I've learned and like how I think about maybe it's not even learned, but like the way that I think about basketball now is like maybe a different way yeah. to phrase it. Sure. Um, I care a lot more about processing and skill than about athleticism than I used to. Um, I want guys that are super high level athletes or super high level like processors of the game and thinkers of the game more than I want the guys that are like crazy athletes. That's just like, not, I guess that's like kind of obvious on some level, but like also, uh, you know, teams continue to value athleticism and look like I just had Cam Whitmore extremely high on my board this year, but like, I think outliers are an important factor in this regard too. Um, but it's also why I ended up with like a Sar Thompson a little bit lower. Like I'm worried more about a Sar shooting than some people are, uh, despite the fact that he's like an incredible athlete who has very high level processing. Like I thought about this a lot with a Sar, to be honest, because mm-hmm. I love the processing, I love the feel, but don't like the shooting and the skill level right now. How does that kind of mix and everything? Yeah, I-, I would say I care a lot more about like processing speed and the quickness with which somebody can think about the game uh, and then obviously like their shooting ability more than what I uh, used to and did. Uh, I'm trying to think of like some other, other things that I've learned quite a bit about. Well, that, that idea of valuing like elite feel and processing and and basketball IQ is something that I've continued to learn over the last couple of years. But I feel like I learned that more from my misses on guys who I undervalued as opposed to guys who I overvalued. Right. Like this is more, uh, why wasn't I higher on Tyrese Halliburton? Like he was clearly brilliant and so good at all these different things. Why didn't I have him as a top three grade in a weaker class? Like that, that is something I should have done and trying to like, why was I low comparatively on Josh Giddy just because I didn't really like the jumper. Like he's brilliant at the game of basketball. So starting to move a lot more in that direction. So, and you're by misses, you're saying the guys I was high on as opposed yes. to the guys I was lower on. Somebody who you were really a big fan of and you struck out and missed. And as time has gone on, you've started to kind of realize why, and maybe that's adjusted how you evaluate. Yeah. The guy, I think my answer is valid insofar as like, I think I cared more about physical traits more than like processing and skill uh, earlier on. It's hard though. Like the game has changed in such a substantial way. Like from when I started doing this in like 2013 or 2014 Mm -hmm. or whatever year it was um, in comparison to now. So like, I'm trying to think of like some of my more recent 
miss examples. I, I'll give one example, actually. Okay. That is just more basic that I've been thinking about a lot more. I think that once you get past 20 or so, maybe 20, maybe 18 is the number. I don't know what the number is. I think there's just a lot more. And I've always thought this way to some extent, like I got yelled at early in my career for like just having guys like this a lot higher. Um, I think there's a lot more value in just taking good basketball players that you think have limited upside. Um, I had Herb Jones as a first round pick. I had Jaime Hawkes higher than most people did. Um, you know, I had, you can just look back, you know, through, I think that like the older players, I had Brandon Clark as a lottery pick. I had Grant Williams, like top 16. Um, I, I think that that's one thing that like I continue to try and value is, the idea of getting somebody that can play now at a certain point and maybe like overrating players outside of the top, like 13, 14 players that are one and dones that are so far away from being good. Um, you know, yeah, Tari, I Tari Easton is lottery pick for somebody that just said that in the comments, right? Like taking good productive basketball players uh, as opposed to, taking bets on like perceived upside, like with, you know, th- this year, like I think I might've been a little too high on like Jalen Huchfino and Jet Howard guys that I had at like, why well, Jet at like 26, but like, um, you know, I had Jalen Huchfino probably at, like 16 or so, something like that. And I wonder if, um, if I was too high on him. Right. Yeah. Productivity is, it, it reminds me of like yeah. in baseball, trying to just get a bunch of guys who hit a bunch of singles and doubles. Like, there's yeah, like Gregory even... Castillo brings up Desmond yeah. Bain. I had Desmond Bain in the top 20 that year. Like, I love Des. Um, you know, and, you know, I agree with Brian Kay. Like, he says, up uh, just not in the lottery. Like, that's how you end up with Kennard over Bam and Donovan Mitchell. I agree with that. Like, in the lottery, I think you should be going a lot more upside base. Mm-hmm. But once you get past a certain point, I think there are very significant diminishing returns on taking the perceived upside bet that is not like a toolsy center. Those are the ones that if you look back through history have actually hit a little bit more often. Um, your Mitchell Robinson's Clint Capella's Rudy Gobert's the guys that have just like super elite tools and athleticism that are just like still younger and developing within the game. Um, th- those are the ones that I think hit a little bit more often, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm thinking about it now. I like that. And I'm going to steal that and I'm going to write an article on something similar to that on my Substack because you've spurred a lot of thoughts in my head over the last five minutes. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, I try to. All right. Next question. We've got three years of sample now. What are your major takeaways on the G League Ignite program? And do you think they do a good job of developing and preparing prospects for NBA success? Hmm. Let's take this two separate directions. All right. I think that the proof is there that they do not do a good job of getting players to their highest value in terms of draft stock. 
for their pre-draft year. And if I was a player or an agent, I would not feel great about sending my player there right now based off of what the track record is. If you go back through history and you look at, you know, the players that have been in the program and their level of success in the draft, really only one guy has like lifted his draft stock, Uh, like gone from being, you know, a great draft, you know, being from somebody that's like not a great draft prospect to a great draft prospect. Uh, Do you know who that is? Are you going to say Marjan Beauchamp? I'm going to say Marjan Beauchamp. Yeah. I I think that Marjan is the one guy that like really actually kind of helped himself in regard to history. So like, if you go back through it, now this is research I have done. I didn't do this beforehand, but I've done this already a little bit. Um, you go back to, you know, this year, right? CD Sissoko was like considered a late first round pick fell to the mid second. Uh, Leonard Miller was considered a late first round pick fell to the early second. And Oh, by the way, Leonard Miller could not have possibly done more from a production standpoint, from anything standpoint to help himself. Uh, than what he did, like he averaged 21 and 12 over the last, however many games and NBA teams did not care about it truly. So that that's an example of one that did not help himself. Scoot Henderson, the fucking red carpet was rolled out for that guy to be the number two overall pick. They set up a series to play Victor Wembanyama because it was very obvious to people that it was going to be number one versus number two. In that draft class, that was it. That was all they were like setting up, and he still went number three. <laughs> yep. So that's one. Last year, Jim Hardy going what thirty uh, eighth or whatever in last year's draft seventh. Yeah, Ugh. I don't know thirty seventh. He was supposed to go top five. Uh, what? Uh, Dyson Daniels was supposed to go in the lottery. He went in the back half of the lottery, right? Yeah, he may he may have climbed just a tad in terms of his perception, but not substantially enough to yeah. This may, maybe helped yeah. himself by two or three spots, but not many. Uh, uh, if you go back through my mocks, which maybe I'll do as we're talking, um, in the preseason, I'm sure I had Dyson as lottery pick, but I was also maybe a little bit higher on Dyson. Maybe I'm over overemphasizing that, uh, you know, that part of it. You, you go back now. Let's see who else do we got. We've got uh, Jonathan Kaminga as well. I think Jonathan Kaminga fell. He went a couple spots lower than what he was supposed to. Uh, Dacian Nix fell, to be sure, to undrafted. Isaiah Todd fell to where he goes in the second round. Let's see here. Uh, who am I missing? Who am I missing? Jalen Green went even. I think Jalen Green was supposed to go two that year, and he went number two. So, you know, good job maintaining your spot, I guess, right? Michael Foster. Michael Foster went undrafted, so he fell. You know, uh, Kai Sato, you know, didn't get drafted. Yeah. It's – 
that's a concerning track record of going there and improving where your preseason buzz was in order to get drafted a little bit higher. I think they've gone like one for 11 so far in terms of helping. And they've gone like three for 11 in terms of like staying even. Okay. And then if you want to be generous, you could say two for 11 in terms of helping. If you want to say Dyson and I'll give you Dyson, if you want, Sure, that's a concerning track record in my opinion. Now, let me ask you this then, because what I worry or not necessarily worry, what I really wonder about is if these players by getting professional competition at an earlier age and earlier exposure are therefore better prepared for success in the NBA, right? Like the trade-off of additional draft position might be longevity and creating a career for yourself in ways that we can't necessarily see or account for this early on in the process. Who has come in and killed? Yeah. I I don't have an answer for you. I, I don't have a good answer for you. Like I don't, Jalen produced right away, but it's been a rocky road in terms of efficiency and decision-making. I don't think anybody else uh, is close. I don't know if people have gotten better yet. Um, I think there's probably a point where these players maybe are more prepared to be professionals and that could bear out over the longer term of their career. And, And look like I am in favor of this program existing. I think it's a fantastic idea for this program to exist, especially when it was created prior to NIL rights being, you know, in the place that they were. Right. If I was Ron Holland, I would have gone to college because you can get paid to go to college now. And look like you have to figure out, like, if you're going to get the NIL money, whereas with the uh, Ignite, you get the money. Like, you know you're getting the money from the NBA. Whereas with some of these NIL situations, it can be a little bit questionable and dicey. And that's not a comment on Texas or Arkansas or any of the schools he was looking at. I just mean that more generally, not specifically toward Ron Holland's situation. I Yeah, I think that, this is the mo- this is by far the most important year of the ignite cycle and if i was an agent and i had a 2024 prospect that would be looking toward the 2025 draft i would not be signing with the ignite until i see how this year goes like if i would i would not be doing a modest bazella situation where i'm signing a year ahead of time i would want to see how this year goes for the ignite So I think this year is pivotal in a lot of ways too, Sam. But uh, what I keep wondering is the defensive infrastructure of what the Ignite program has looked like and will continue to look like. Playing in a professional league while trying to have three, sometimes more teenagers on the floor at the same time. That that is going to be very challenging when none of your opponents are doing that when they're all grown men and have a lot more experience under their belt, that there are defensive challenges that come. And I've seen that the last few years. Kaminga by this year got pretty good on defense. I would say. Oh, sure. But I'm talking just in their one year with the ignite, right? It's, it's really hard for you to showcase two way playing potential when all of the defensive metrics for the team are going to be thrown off in some regard by just how abysmal and how difficult it is to feel the competitive defensive unit well, and, when you're the only one with and, teenagers on the court. Now that you say that, like out of the players that we've talked about, like Dyson is really the only one that stood out defensively. Yes. Uh, 
in his sample. Yep. Yeah. And no, honestly, no. I think Dyson probably got underrated defensively because uh, I think that guy, if he like plays enough minutes and he gets good enough offensively, he's going to be an all defense guy in the NBA. Right. right. And and like, but like, and I, that... I saw that, but I don't know if everybody, uh, that was not a consensus opinion. No. It, but I look at the other players that they've brought in and, and I think of the conversation we just had on like outdating archetypes in some regard like Michael Foster and Isaiah Todd don't scream NBA player for what the NBA wants like is that really a stain on the Ignite program for not developing them or is it just choosing the wrong player to really come in in some regard or not forecasting what it's going to be like for the NBA draft and I just keep thinking about all these trends and I see how many bodies the Ignite have this coming season and they're like tripling down on youngsters this is by far the youngest roster they've ever had. Yeah. This is probably the one with the least in theory floor spacing. It, and and by the way, the defense. most positional overlap. Yes. Cause like all of modest Ron Holland, Izzy Almanza, like their best spot right now is probably the four, four, five. I would answer. Yep. yep. Yeah. Well, Ron, Ron's like a three, four. And, sure. and I think Holland will play the three for sure. But like, I am sure modest Bazellas is going there hoping to play some like three. You know what I mean? And like being able to like play on the perimeter and showcase some real skill set, right? He's more of a guard than he is a big. I know he's six foot 11, but he is more of a guard in terms of the way he plays. And then you have like Thierry Darlin, who's like a three. And then you have uh, Babakar Sane, who's a three. And then like Tyler Smith, by the way, is actually really interesting. Yes. And is. is a pure four. Like there's a lot of positional overlap with this roster. There is. And, and oh, by the way, like F.A. Boogity is still on this team, I believe, if he gets healthy. And I believe he's not like he's not draft eligible. Like, I think he can get signed at any point. Right. But like, I, I don't really trust like uh 17 year old Dink Pate to be able to like run the show. I don't trust London Johnson to be like a great point guard to be able to run the show. You know, what the best thing that I think the Ignite could do is what's that? Pay Frankie Ferrari like $400,000 this year to run the show. I'm not joking. Pay Frankie Ferrari like $400,000 this year to run the show for the Ignite. Maybe more, genuinely, maybe like $700,000. Pay him like an exorbitant amount of money to get everybody in the right place at the right time as needed. Yep. And look, I've been thinking about that so much because – as I watch all these rebuilds and younger teams around the NBA taking place, the common thread amongst the teams who I think go off the rails a little bit is that there are not enough veterans on the court or in the locker room. It's just a bunch of young guys where they're committing to that process. I think it's really easy for the on-court product to fall off quickly in that type of situation. The Ignite should attack that the exact same way. They need veterans. They need those pros who are not just in the, in the context of the roster, but like, getting legitimate minutes on that team because that's what's going to stabilize them on both ends of the floor. I, I I really worry about the defense for the Ignite, and I think there are a lot of these prospects who, while right now I see them as an individually incredibly talented, I wonder who's just going to leave a sour taste in my mouth because we're not seeing the right utilization of them or system for them to pop this coming season. Yeah. And by the way, one other name, I just want to do like a full accounting, like Mojave King got drafted this year and Mojave King probably helped himself. 
this year. It's, that's probably that's one that helped himself. That is very um, fair. So we're we're batting through, you know, at the most uh, generous outlook of this, we're batting three for 12 or like three for 13 in terms of helping themselves. Uh, in five for 13 in terms of like staying steady and equal, it's still not good enough for this program, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah, it, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating program three years in. Really, really yeah. strange. Yeah, like I, I don't, I, I don't know. It's it's hard. It, it's it, it's it's a hard. I've thought a lot about this because I, I love that it exists, and I think it's a really good idea for the league to like have this thing exist. I just don't know if it's being utilized to its full potential in the way that these rosters in these structures are built. I'm with you. All right, Sam. Last question. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Which one player whose career was derailed by injuries do you wish we got to see in their prime the most? Hmm. <laughs> um. <sighs> the nostalgia question yeah i love it um i think the answer for me it comes down to either greg odin or sean livingston for me okay like uh, people in the comments are saying Brandon Roy, like we saw Brandon Roy we in his prime. It and was fucking cool. We, like, were, <laughs> we were robbed of the longevity of it, but we saw it. But we saw it. Like we, we, we were lucky enough to see it. Yeah. I'm trying to think of guys that like we didn't even really get to see the prime. Right. Uh, to me, I think I am going to – my heart is saying – Greg Oden, because I think Greg Oden would have been like a league altering force. Uh, I truly do. If he was able to stay healthy, Uh, his defense, he went toe to toe with the best college basketball team of the last 20 years with that Florida team that was led by Joakim Noah and Al Horford and dropped like 25, 15 and like five blocks on them. And was completely like, Honestly, if I can get that game on Synergy, I might do like a breakdown of that game. That is, I've gone back and watched that. That is the coolest game that you can go back and watch. Those dudes were unreal. If you go back and watch any of them, they were unbelievable. All three of them. And it's just a bummer that we didn't get a chance to see them in the way that we didn't. Um, I mean, my, my heart is saying Greg Oden. I think Greg Oden's probably the right answer. Like literally, I think 30 out of 30 teams would have taken Greg Oden at the end of the day uh, over Kevin Durant. And by the way, Kevin Durant was – Kevin Durant Sorry. is one of the best college basketball players I've ever seen in my life. Yep. He was insane at Texas. Like it was all there at Texas and 30 general managers were like, no, we'll take Greg. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's how good Greg Oden was. But I want to give a special mention to Sean Livingston 
Okay. If you go back and you watch like those early Clippers, Sean Livingston moments before the injury, where he was just starting to like figure it out a little bit, right? Like he was so young and was still like so nascent in his development process. But like you can see some of it, man. Like you can really, really see some of what was going to be like a truly special playmaker, passer, everything like that. Like that, that was. He, he was something. I, I really wish he would have stayed healthy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the Odin one is probably where I come down on this too, but like there are so many other players that I would think like, I, I really wish we got to see Jabari Parker play a little bit healthier for a longer period of time and see what he could have turned into. Um, yep. You know, I, I think Markel Fultz is a still really productive player, but a different version of Markel than what we saw and coming out of Washington, I would have loved to see that guy here in the NBA. Like, you know, there, there's been a lot of uh, good ones thrown out in the comments section too. Like Jay Williams at Duke is one that I, I grew up absolutely loving him as a player. I would have loved to see what that turned into. Yeah, agree. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm looking at Greg Oden right now, trying to find like Greg Oden's numbers real quick. I mean, he was so he was so dominant too. And and that was that was the thing of that Ohio State team. Like he did it on both ends of the floor and he you could run anything through him and it didn't matter. He would score. Yeah. He was an underrated passer, like really good player. Yeah, he went for 25, 12 and four blocks uh in the national title game against Florida against the best front court college basketball scene in the last two decades. Uh if you look back through like the last part of his season, it, it's just like, he was so completely and utterly dominant, like in every way, shape and form. Um, his last 21 games, Ohio state went 20 and one with their only loss being in that national title game to Florida, uh, where he shot or averaged 16 and a half points, 10 rebounds, three blocks, uh, shot 62% from the field, you know, 63 true shooting percentage, shot 64% from the line shooting left-handed yes. uh, at the free throw line. Like, that's the other thing. Like, he did this all like a broken, broken hand. Broken hand, yep. In his freshman season at Ohio State. He is so good. Yep. Like, he was so – he was special. Um, it, it was, It's crazy. It's truly crazy. I really wish we got to see him in the NBA for, I mean, let's think about it. That Portland team is one of the greatest what ifs ever because Greg Oden, LaMarcus Aldridge and Brandon Roy, they drafted those three guys three years in a row, right? Yeah. Yeah. What that could have been. Would have been amazing. Would have like truly been unbelievable. Uh, Yeah. I, I might post, there's a chance I post clips of like the Greg Oden Florida game. Cause that is yeah. like, that is something, man. That, was that so game much. was truly unbelievable. So um, yeah. Is that it? That's all you got. Sam, you are relieved of your duties on the witness <laughs> stand. You may step down. We'll do this again. Maybe like next month, I'll make you come up with more questions when we're in like the dog days of August. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, that, this was fun. I enjoyed this. Good. I had to like actually think through some things a little bit uh, in a way that on the fly, I typically don't have to. Nice. This was good. I enjoyed this. this. Okay. I, I will take control again of the show. <laughs> yes, I see it to you. Adam, sir. 
tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Yeah, find me on X Twitter thing, whatever, uh, at the box and one underscore or my Substack page, the box and one dot Substack dot com. Uh, got a couple things coming up on both YouTube and my Substack this week on a couple transfers and sophomores and then trying to do a little bit more uh, film sessions and deep dives there, breaking down film on some guys. Did some UConn prospects last week uh, heading to the SEC for the team that we're covering this week. So that should be a bundle of fun. Um. Yeah, I'll have a couple episodes beyond this this week. At some point, I have to go see Mission Impossible again because I've told Robbie Callen that we are going to do an episode on Mission Impossible along with some basketball stuff at some point. Uh, I also saw Barbie last night. Barbie was so unbelievable. It, yeah. it was everything I wanted it to be. I, I'm like the biggest like Greta Gerwig fan like in the world. Like I loved Little Women. It's like my favorite movie you know one of my favorite movies of the last five or so years i I think it's just like outstanding and perfect across the board um this was pretty close uh this was really really close uh un unbelievable film and and like hysterically funny i can't wait then I'm, i'm going later this week so that's good anything ryan gosling does in that movie and anything kingsley benadir does in that movie is like truly laugh out loud funny. <laughs> Good. It's it's unbelievable. It's truly unbelievable. Okay. Um, I'll be back later this week. I will have my 2024 mock going up on The Athletic early this week. That is my plan. I'm actually finishing writing it today. It will go up early this week at some point, Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that. That's all I've got. Until next time, we'll talk soon.